I can't remember if where or if I ever put uh, the phrase marriage made in heaven in connection with the advertising or the flyer or the or my, I don't I don't remember that but I know it's been in in and out of there uh, somewhere along the line but marriage made in heaven I I was really reluctant to even mention that phrase because it almost seems trite and uh, incidental and uh, kind of cliche marriage made in heaven. Uh, generally speaking, that phrase is not used in any kind of literal sense. Uh, it's, in, it's in our own our imagination that we determine that a marriage is made in heaven as the t- phrase is typically used. But the more I thought about it, that, that really is exactly what we are talking about. And that is a marriage that's defined by the word of God, a marriage that is built according to God's plans, a marriage that is conducted and lived and uh, uh, functions under the authority of the Lord. All that's done and said in that marriage is according to truth and right. And that is a marriage that has been designed and implemented and made in heaven and, uh, and uh, received by people, men and women on the earth, determined that they in faith are going to follow God's plan. So we are talking about marriages that are made in heaven. And it's not a trite, romantic kind of a statement. It is a description of, of where we get our concept of what the home and what the marriage ought to be. We want to be sure that we are following God's rules. We want to be sure that uh, spiritual thinking and spiritual living is putting, uh, putting this marriage as it ought to be. It's defined by what is in heaven. Success in marriage can be, can be described in a variety of ways and tested in a vari- variety of subjects and areas. And uh, how well we're doing can be anywhere from just barely getting by to bliss, I guess. And, but as, as we think about our marriage, I hope that we look at our own home, our own marriage, uh, as we would our own relationship with God and our salvation. It's a process of growth. We start somewhere. We start with something. And certainly in, as Christians, becoming Christians and be, making the choice to be disciples, we begin with whatever faith has brought us to the commitment. We begin with a confidence of the future and a ter- ter- determination that we're going to be what the Lord wants us to be. And so we begin our Christian life, and then we realize we've got a long way to go, and, and we've got a lot to grow And so we start to learn more, involve ourselves more, increasing our service, uh, accepting sacrifice as a a requirement, and realizing that uh, we have the opportunity to help others in significant ways. And so which one am I talking about, being a disciple or being a husband or a wife? And they really... uh, both are, are a process of growth. So wherever I am, wherever you are in your married life right now, there's something that we can take away from this kind of an exercise, not that I'm telling you anything new necessarily, but to bring these passages back and to review them again, and now with a different, un, a, a greater capacity of understanding what you've read many times before, we can grow in the marriage relationship and be what we ought to be. Uh, marriage is like our spiritual life. It is a process of growth. When we first get married, there's obviously the romantic excitement and joy of being together, and, and we have our own family. Nobody tells us what to do now. We have each other, and each other's the only people that matter. And that's a, that's a wonderful time of life. 
But it, it changes pretty quickly because then there's the excitement of building something, whether we're renting an apartment or, or trying to figure out where we're going to live or how we're going to pay the bills. But it, it's us now, and we're going to do this. And, and there's, there's a challenge in that that pulls two people together. And so now it's a, it, there's, there's a little more depth to the relationship and to the life of this married couple. It keeps going a, a little bit longer, and, and now children are anticipated, or children have arrived, or children are taking over the house. And obviously now, honey, it's, it's us against them. It's, uh, it's you and me now. We, we've got, we can't let them get the upper hand, and we realize that we need each other. We, we, we've brought these children into the world, and they are our responsibility. And you and me, we have to make something good of this. And that is a wonderful challenge and experience. It's a blessing uh, uh, to be able to do that. But that's, a, that's very different that, than we were as a married couple back in the, those earliest days, or even as we were calming down from our excitement uh, uh, exhilaration of being married together. Now, it, this is serious, but the import draws us closer together if we will let it. And certainly, the children get older and older, and we become more and more irrelevant in this house, it seems. And they're looking beyond the walls and beyond the, 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 the yard and, and in the neighborhood even to other places and to other people and other things. And if we've done well, we can, we can look with them and, and let them go. And now we, we look at each other again and we say, okay, now what? Now, where are we? And this can be a time where you just kind of depend on each other to make each other happy and to keep each other uh, to, uh, uh, in, in an optimistic spirit with the kids gone. So now what? And you can, we can open up new experience. We can look back on history now. We can look back. To, you remember when? Man, I'll never forget. You know, one of the saddest days in my life one, the best things that we ever did as a family, you remember? And, and so our relationship is evolving more, is growing bigger and more significant day by day. This is ideally what happens in a marriage relationship. I'm uh, older now. I'm much older now. Uh, and I always thought that I was old enough. And I never really thought about how it's going to feel later. But I never really believed that marriage would be more significant and more important and more uh, or bigger in my heart the older I got. But there are, there are others out there who are listening to me who know exactly what I'm saying, that, that how could anything beat that wedding night, that joy of commitment and love and this, we just grin and smile at each other and giggle and... This is just so wonderful to be together, to, to begin our life together, and, and, and how wonderful. Can, can, can anything ever be this day, this night, this week, as we take our first trip together on the honeymoon? Yeah. There will be a lot of things. That first child uh, saying goodbye to the last child as they drive away to go to school or... As we sit together years after the kids are gone and start to hear about grandchildren, maybe, and we just look at each other, and, and there's, there is a solid, a solid relationship that has endured, 
and has changed and it has enveloped more things and more ideas and more emotions and more sacrifices and more riches. We're, it's just not the same. It's not supposed to be the same. It evolves and grows, and marriage is better every day, every week, every month, every year. Let's try not to cry. That's the truth. And so we need to look at our homes at, like we do our, married, uh, our, our marriages and our, and our life together and see the value in what we're doing and never even for a moment think that we're going to walk away from this because this is home. This is home for us now. And so as we talk about having a good marriage and being a good spouse, singles, you need to listen so you can prepare as best you can. Those of us that are married, we need to be reminded over and again. We need to be reminded of of what's what and what's most important. And those of us that have been married for a long time, we just love the subject. So let's hear the sermon again anyway. And we we hope the younger people are paying attention because it can be so terribly terrible when you don't do it right. But it can be so wonderfully wonderful when you do. And that's what we want for every person in the assembly this evening. Uh, Marriage changes who we are, and it's so big that the Lord understands how that it impacts our life. It's so significant. I want to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. Paul's in this whole chapter has been talking about marriage and he's come to a section where he's discussing whether or not people ought to be married and get married and in this he's saying sometimes you shouldn't get you should wait you should not marry because of the circumstances and what's what you're facing it's better not to marry at this time if you marry it's not you're not in sin you can read this yourself you'll find this right if you do marry it's not unlawful but is it is it wise right now because of what we are facing as God's people and what he ends up telling us in this is that we need to think about marriage seriously because it significantly changes who we are and how we live our life. Let's begin in verse 32. I want you to be without care. And that means trouble. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married, he who is married cares about the, excuse me, verse 34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. In this contrast, let's pause because this, this might be disturbing, uh, but in this contrast, the world here does not represent evil. It's just talking about this life, that which is earthly, that which pertains to our existence on the earth. It says when you marry, you're concerned about the things of the world. What things of the world are you most concerned with? I'm, the most important part of the world to me is wherever my, my wife and my kids are. I care about that. And I worry about that. And I think about that and I plan for that. And uh, I, I try to work so that I can take care of that and protect that. I'm caring for the things of the world. And the Lord understands that that's necessary if you're going to marry. But those who are unmarried, they don't care about those things. They don't have those things. And so they're at liberty to do what? To care about the Lord. 
Anybody wonder why the Apostle Paul remained single his whole life? We can all wonder. I don't think any of us know. But it's my guess that if he was married and had children, his poor family, they wouldn't even know where he is unless they were with him. (laughs) They want to go on that trip? See, Paul cared not for the things of the world. He set that apart. He committed himself fully to the Lord in the sense of sacrifice of being that evangelistic apostle that would go throughout the world. But that's true of all of us. When we marry, God says your spouse and your family is so important that it's going to impact what you're able to do in the kingdom. And that's not a sin. And we need to be careful that we do not raise our and lift our family up and put them in the place of the Lord. This passage is not settling everything pertaining to this question, but it is reminding us that God understands that when you marry, that demands your commitment and your loyalty and your care, and you need to give attention to the things of your family. It's so sad for preachers who neglect their family in their pursuit of the lost. We can't neglect our families. If we've got a family, we've got to take care of them. And so marriage is is significant on a spiritual level. We're not talking about somebody who's turning their back on the Lord, but someone who is living for the Lord a spiritual life and taking care of their family is a spiritual work because it's a God-given responsibility. But one of those now is modifying what we do in the other one of those. And so the, the main point here is, uh, is that the Lord understands the significance of the family and our significant responsibility in our family. We need to give care for the, that part of the world. My little corner of the world needs to, needs to be uh, on my radar and accept my care. Let's just move on then to, to what we really want to talk about tonight, and that's marriage made in heaven. And uh, it's, it starts in the creation. I want you to notice as we look at some of the passages this evening, even later in the study, as we go to the New Testament, how many times a principle about marriage is established from the early chapters of the book of Genesis? People think that times are different and people have changed, and so the, the, the world and society and culture and, and economy, it's all, it's all just kind of an evolving process. So morality is also an evolving process. That's not the way God talks about it. When asked about divorce, remember the question that Jesus, uh, that Jesus asked those who were challenging him? He said, have you not read what God said from the beginning a man shall leave his father and mother. What God said in the very beginning when there was only one human being to talk to, Adam, when God spoke to him, he laid down the principles for marriage that Jesus said are still intact. And there would be a couple thousand years past time passing there. The Apostle Paul does the same thing later. We'll notice that. And so we're going to start in the book of Genesis and see what we can find out that will help us to understand the, the home and the marriage relationship. This, this, this might be considered a given in, uh, in, a, in a study of the marriage relationship. Surely everybody's got Genesis chapter 1 verses intact. But I've decided that they need special attention in our day because of the the changes in the world's attitude about uh, sexual relations, 
about male and female gender differences and, and how those are treated and what people do sexually. The world is all over the map on those, and, the, and, and we, we, we don't understand. That just seems so unnatural. It's, it's unbiological, but it's unnatural. It's not the right way, and people are just being misguided, and they're mistaken, and I don't, I don't understand why everybody's all excited about this and getting on the bandwagon, even though they have no intention of participating. It's just that we need to love everybody, and this is so cool. But we don't know what to do about that. And, and what I want to suggest, and I simplify, I want to suggest that we need to just accept the fact that these people don't know God. And when you take God out of the picture, what is there to, to catch our attention, help us figure out what's right and wrong? I mean, whatever I think is, is good enough for me. If you take God out of the picture, in Genesis 1, where we start, in the beginning, God... And God created the heavens and the earth. And he created by his spoken word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, and he said, and he said for six days, until finally he said, let us make man in our image. And we see power in that. We see the ownership in that. We see the God in that creation who speaks all things into existence by virtue of his own intent and will. We talk about the will of God. We're talking about what he wants, what he intends. And I'll tell you, whatever God intends, it is. And he need do nothing more than speak it. I really suggest here that the speaking it is so we get to hear it. Because I'm not sure he even, have to say, he even has to say anything. It's God's will. And so when God finally spoke on the sixth day in verse 26, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be food. And so God speaks the world into existence, and that's our home. That was, That is... Uh, that in which we dwell. And now as we, he talks about the animals and then the plants, we subdue and we eat. And this world has been created for our welfare and our benefit. And so there's some principles there that the world has forgotten. But we're, that's not on our agenda tonight. In verse 26, the part where man, mankind, humanity is made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Uh, what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? I think we begin by saying, it, well, it means free will, the, the power of choice, self-determination. See, God can do what he decides he wants to do. He, he, he's not acting on instinct like an animal that migrates and doesn't really think about whether or not it's time to go north or go south. They just do. 
that's, that's not an act of will on the part of the birds. Self-determination. And, and with that, there's moral sensibility. And sensibility isn't how, how sensible you are, but it's the, the senses. <laughs> there's a sense of immorality in humanity. Even bad people have lines they won't cross. We live with moral sensibility and, re- and we are responsible for our own actions because we control our own actions. We possess qualities that enable us to know God and understand him and understand our obligation to him and choose him with reason and emotion. We can do that. We can choose. And you know what else we can do? We can choose not to. That's, that's what we are, and that's what God created us to be, that free will, self-determination, this moral sensibility. And we were created not only with the capacity of choice and will and, and to determine and to decide, we were also created with an innocence and a righteousness and a holiness that had no sin and no evil in it. But in sin, Genesis chapter 3 The woman was tempted, and the man followed her lead, and sin was in the world, and now humanity is separated from God, and in sin, we lose part of our likeness with God. We lose the innocence part. The righteous part of ourselves is lost. And, you know, that's what happens with regard to our spouse and to our marriage as well. Uh, But we're called once again to come back to God. And once again, we can choose whether we will do that or not. But being in God's image is more than just the capacity. And this is where I have generally thought and taught and, and uh, uh, tried to apply this passage of being in the image of God. That being in the image of God is the capacity to know and to decide and to be and, and, and that, that self-determination. But that's, that's not all God intended, was it? He intended us to be like him. Like, be holy, for I am holy. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges each man's work, conduct yourselves throughout time of your stay here in fear. Fear God and be holy. Or I have loved you and therefore you ought to love one another. In John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Be holy. Love God. Love one another. Why holy? Why love? Because that's what God is. And we were created to be in his image. And then in Romans chapter 8, Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son, that he might be the firstborn, he is, Jesus is, the firstborn among many brethren. That was God's intention, not just that we have the capacity, but that we also possess the innocence and the righteousness uh, of God. To be like God is what he intended from the beginning. And so what it means to lose our likeness with God means we lose our relationship with him. It also means that we destroy our relationship with other people. In sin, we destroy relationships. And certainly that's where we're making a connection in our study of marriage, that we're going to destroy our marriage if, if we let sin persist in our lives. In, uh, in sin, in Genesis chapter 3, it changed the marriage relationship in a, in a bad way. Go back there, Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw that the fruit was good for, good, good for food and uh, would make one wise. She took of the fruit in verse 6 and 8, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he did eat. So they both sinned, and they both sinned sin together. That, won't hurt. that doesn't sound like that ought to hurt the, hurt the marriage, but it does. Because sin hurts the marriage. It doesn't have to be a sin against my spouse, my husband or my wife. I don't have to sin against them. I didn't, call, I didn't do something bad to her, to him. Yeah, but sin destroys relationships, and it destroys marriage, marriage relationship as well. So she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So he eats it too. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Why are they doing that? Because they're ashamed. I don't understand it, but it's curious that in the Old Testament and a variety of places, guilt of sin is connected to shame for our nakedness. And it started here. In uh, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. You think he felt good when he said that? I think there was that moment where he said, God, she, she gave it to me. And, and then I think, I think it, it stopped right there. It wasn't good anymore. He, he knew that was bad. What do you think she, how do you think she felt? What did that do to their relationship together? When he said, the woman, he didn't say, sweet Eve. He didn't say, sweet Eve gave it to me. He said, the woman, you gave, the woman gave to me and I did eat. And then you drop down to verse 16. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, in your conception in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Sounds like the makings of a good marriage, a nice relationship. There's pain here. It's directly connected to their relationship together, particularly in the bearing of children. The best of marriages, you've got a woman yelling at a man as a baby is being delivered, right? It's just, it's just a tough situation there. And then what about the man in verse 17? Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Interesting that God says that. You listen to your wife and have eaten the tree from which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat the bread till you return to the ground until you die. You've got a miserable life. And so we see that's all is the result of the sin. 
And when we lose our innocence before God, we lose our innocence before other people, and it taints and destroys and hurts our relationship. So guilt, we feel guilt. That's what sin does. We feel guilt, and we blame, and resentment grows, turning into anger, and we start hurting each other or hurting ourselves, and none of any of this is good for marriage. The point I want us to see here is that the marriage made in heaven, it was designed to be a place where two righteous people enjoy one another in the, in the presence of God. That's what you had in the Garden of Eden. And what God is teaching us here is that sin just wipes that picture out and turns it into a complete disaster. We need to think about that and make this application. When I sin before God as a husband... I'm infringing on the, on the peace and the happiness and the welfare of my family. Yeah, but this sin had nothing to do with my family. It has everything to do with your family. Because how do you feel right now as a man? Or a woman for that matter. Sin is the enemy of our marriage relationship. And so to improve our marriage, maybe we just need to repent and seek forgiveness. I'm not talking about... For sexual immorality, unfaithfulness to the spouse, or for chasing somebody else and setting up a date with with us with some with a stranger, I'm not talking about any of those sins. I'm just talking about sin, sin, whatever sin. If I'm not what I ought to be spiritually before God, what right do I have to lead about a wife and raise children? They need they need a father. They need a she needs a husband that will lead them toward God in righteousness and in holiness. And out of that righteousness, there's going to be those qualities of character that everybody loves. Compassion and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and meekness and, and all, those, all those good things. Honesty and integrity and, and uh, the gentle touch. And so we lose and hurt our, resp- our relationship in our marriage when we are given over to sin. We need to go to God and ask forgiveness. We need to repent and make a determination. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be a better woman. Uh, Whether my family knows anything about this or not. If they do, they need to know about my commitment to change. If they don't, and you can decide whether it's for your good and their good to be open with them or just to make the change and become the person you ought to be through the forgiveness in the blood of Christ. God did not arbitrarily impose moral rules. God's commands, all of them, are pulling us back to his image and his likeness. When, whatever it is that God's telling me to do in the Bible, it's a call for me to become what I was created to be, like Adam. Only innocent, the, the original Adam, before he turned away from God. And so these sins are pulling me away and pulling me out of that Garden of Eden. We need to compare the marriage relationship with our relationship with God. God was the husband of Israel, and uh, Israel was the wife of God. And that illustration helps us to see that Well, that's what marriage is. It's a relationship that is spiritually based, that's lived out in this life. So let's let's make a commitment to holiness and righteousness. And there's the idea of being in the image of God. 
Moving further, well, before I, I wanted to look at this passage, I'm sorry. Let me back up here. Don't let you get too far ahead of me. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, in 2 Peter chapter 1, just on the idea of spiritual growth and becoming the people we ought to be. Let's read verses 2 through 4 for, for starters. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's, let's read part of that again, and, and let's think that we're Adam, or we're Eve. We're listening to these words of God. He said, I have given you all things pertaining to life and godliness through, through the knowledge of Christ. You ate, you ate the fruit, but I've given you this opportunity. And by this opportunity, you've been given the exceeding great and precious promise that through these you can be partakers of the divine nature. You can turn back the clock past that sin and be what you were before the sin occurred. That's what God's calling us to, all of us. This is Second Peter. He's writing to Christians who've made a commitment to the Lord, who still have issues in their life that need to be resolved. Repentance needs to happen. And they need to, they need to be nourished by this word of God that contains promises and hope, but also con- contains instructions on how to correct the errors in their life. And you can partake of the divine nature. You can be like God again. If we want good marriages, we need to realize that we are created in the image of God. And every rule, every command, every responsibility he's given us to guide us down a path that keeps us in the image of God. Righteousness and integrity and purity and holiness and love and faith. They keep us. Every one of those rules keeps us in that Uh, walk with God and what kind of a marriage is the result when you've got two people committed to God in that sense and so I think marriages that are made in heaven first recognize that they are created in the image of God as we go further then in chapter 1 of Genesis again we read, uh, I have to look at it again since it's been a little while since we read it now. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God made them male and fa- female. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Have children. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the rest of the animals. God made them God made them male and female, and God said, have children. And that's the order for God's family. It's just like when Jesus says, have you not read from the beginning that God made them male and female, and a man shall, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And then Jesus added the words that are not found in Genesis. I think he's got the right to do that. I think Jesus can can add some words here. Jesus said, and what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. 
And so what's the answer to the question of divorce? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's the answer. And that's what he told the Jews on that day. And here we've got a man and a woman who brings forth children, and they are the family that God has created. God made them male and female. Regardless of how we want to define things, God created males and he created females, and that is persisted through the ages in the families. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds, the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. The qualities and the relation, and the, the, the re, and qualities and realities of the relationship are clear here. God created the man and the woman, and they were to be married and become one. And God created the woman because the man was incomplete and insufficient and uh, alone, which was not good. And so the, the woman was created for that reason. And what we begin to see here as we consider this and its effect on our attitudes toward the marriage relationship, there is, there is an equality in the male and the female. Did you hear it? Which one is in the image of God and which one is not? They're both in the image of God. Male and female, we're both in the image of God. There's, an, there's a... a a sexual equality, male and female, with regard to our relationship to God. My relationship to God is no better, no greater, no more important than any female on earth. There's an equality, all people, male or female. We need to understand that, guys, and, and realize that she may be more committed to Christ than I am. She might know the scriptures better than I do. She might make better spiritual judgments than me. And sometimes I need to pay attention to her because I need to help her, and she's a good one. And, and, and we need to realize that equality exists. The other reality that we want to notice is that they were created male and female, and they were to be fruitful and to multiply. And I'll leave that alone since we just had a couple of comments on that. But out of this... Uh, there is a mutual respect, the man and the woman, and the woman for the man as well. And out of that relationship, as children are brought into the world, we have the illustration of the physical expression of love in the, in the uh, conceiving and bearing of children. But then we have got the spiritual uh, uh, expression of that love as we see the relationship of parents and ch children uh, taking shape and taking form. We read in that paragraph that Adam was alone. And being alone was not good. That was only satisfied by the creation of the woman. And Adam 
learned that. What other reason is there for the insert in the middle of that paragraph? By the way, Adam named all the animals. So what? God didn't bother telling us what the names were. We had to name them again. I mean, I, I'm assuming that. I don't think Adam called, him, called it a horse. He probably had a different name. And so what was, what's the significance? And for the man, there was not found a help suitable. He saw everything in the world and nothing fit. Nothing could, could be with him. Nothing could satisfy what was needed on his part. And so the woman is the, created to be a helper. And I think that's significant. We're talking about the role of husbands and wives in the marriage a little bit more tomorrow. But uh, the idea of a helper suggests just that, right? I'm not going to explain helper. We've got Adam. He needed a helper. And the woman was created to be the helper. Where does she find her fulfillment and her place and her role? I believe the statement stands. She was a helper that was comparable in the New King James that I'm reading, but it may be comparable or compatible. But again, that's the world's use of the term compatible between husband and wife means we both like football and you both like the same team. That's compatible. And that's not what this is about. So compatible, I'm going to leave that one off just because I think it's misleading. But it's answering to whatever shape Adam took, the woman stood with him and completed the form so that you had a whole when they were together. That's the idea of comparable, answering to, a suitable helper means a helper that met the needs that existed in Adam. God said, here, I made her for you. And she fit. She fit. And, and those of us who are mature enough to understand the, the physical ramifications of that statement... I hope we also understand that that is such a small part of what that fit means. It illustrates graphically. But the husband and the wife, as they meet each other's needs, there's so much more than that uh, sexual union involved. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read it because I don't want to stumble over my words. And this is a simple statement that is quite profound. Oops, I had it. 1 Corinthians 8. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. For the man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So far, that fits with what we read in Genesis. We, we get that. that makes, that's a good explanation for what we read in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. It's a curious piece of information. The part about the authority is to emphasize the idea of the role, which is what this paragraph is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. The role, who's the head of the, head of the house, who's the head, God or Christ, Christ the man or man the woman. And uh, the man is the head of the woman is what the passage is teaching. And so it says, it's so th- there's, there's the reason for the, uh, the symbol of authority. But the nevertheless, you see that we give that authority to the man 
And then God says, nevertheless, hold on a minute, buster. He says, for the women, woman came from the man, but even so, the man also comes through the woman. God wants us to understand not only the spiritual equality that we have here, but even in the physical realm, there's this mutual dependence one upon the other. We don't need to, to elevate ourselves in any kind of arrogance in our relationship with our wife or with women in general. We need to understand that God understands the, uh, has established the equality of them. And so the man needs the, the woman, and that showed his insufficiency. She meets that need, and that makes her the helper. And yet we see further in back in Genesis chapter 2 that when the woman was created, what was the, uh, where did the, the, the supplies come from? Well, the rib of Adam, and we, we like to talk about that in weddings, right? That the woman was taken from the side of Adam, and she was fashioned from the rib that came from his side so that she could walk beside him, not behind him and not in front. I, you know, I don't know if all this is really what God intends or not. I, I kind of think not, but it sounds pretty. So she's going to walk beside him, not in front or not behind. And it, right there, so he can put his arm around her. I like that part. But I'm not sure that's what God's talking about either. But, but what it does imply that I do not think we can deny is that there is an intimate relationship in these two people as they see each other and accept one another. I belong to you. I came from you. We are made for each other. Those are phrases that I think call upon the, the sense that the, that the woman was made from the man. We depend on each other. The woman is not without the husband or the man, but the, the, the man is not without the husband. When God created man, he took the dust of the earth and uh, made, a, made a human being, made a man. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That, that just teaches us that God is intimately connected to us. I, I like to think about that one time. Every once in a while, think about how God, God uh, breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And so the closeness is shown in the creation. We are close to God and we are close to one another uh, as human beings. So in verses 22 through 24, they became one flesh. but They were not joined together until they were married. They became one flesh. Leave father and mother and be joined. And they became one flesh. And they were not ashamed. When we see this picture, it's a picture that's simple. We've understood it for a long time maybe. And the world does not. And we're frustrated. We want to tell them. We want to show them Genesis chapter 1. But the world has, leaves, leaves the first word in the first chapter out. And without that word... They have, they have no reason to accept any of this foolishness that we've been talking about. They leave out the first word in the first chapter. You know what it is, don't you? God. In the beginning, God. It's not first exactly, but it's, it's the main word. It's the first word there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke all things into existence. God made them male and female. In our family, we show ourselves to be like God or not. And 
I, we, we do that in other relationships, and we do that in all of our behavior. But in our families, we are, we are so exposed. They see us all the time. They know everything about us. We can't hide things from our kids. We cannot hide things from our spouse. In our families, we show ourselves to be like God or not. And this lesson is, is primarily to urge us to know that to improve our marriages, we've got to improve ourselves. That we have to become like God, walk in his image, in his likeness, in every respect. If I will be like God was to uh, the children of Israel, if I will be like that to my wife, and if, if my wife would do for me what God wanted Israel to do, simply love him, follow him, be true to him. But they would not. They would not. God is at his best as a husband. God was at his best as a husband when Israel, his bride, was at their worst. You think about that? You think about God as the husband of Israel. Wow. What he put up with and what he was willing to forgive and the occasions that he let them start over and how he served them and fed them and gave them everything they need, made grand and great promises to which he was loyal. We need to be husbands like that. And the wife needs to be better than Israel. But we'll talk about that later. I appreciate your good attention tonight, and I hope that the thing that you can take home is this idea that, that we cannot improve our marriages if we're not willing to improve our own character and our own behavior. We need to be in the image of God as men and women standing together in life. There may be some this evening who have not been living as they ought. If you have not yet been baptized for the remission of sins, you need to study that. And if you really already understand, you just haven't made the commitment, why don't you decide that tonight to become a child of God? If you're married, it'll make you a better husband or wife. If you're not married, it'll make you more desirable. And uh, I encourage you to consider that. And as, as Christians, we may not always be what we ought to be. If there's need to re repent and to, to come to the Lord in any way, we can help you come to the front as we stand together and sing. <laughs>